0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Philippians. Here's Nate. It's, of course, fascinating that the book of Philippians is one of the most joy-filled epistles in the New Testament and books of the Bible, Uh, because Paul is writing, of course, from prison and he is just filled with such incredible joy as he writes to this beloved Philippian church. So thankful to them of uh, for their uh, graciousness in giving to him and supporting his ministry. So thankful for the fact that they had sent Epaphroditus to minister to him and his needs to report to him there in Rome and to take care of him. And so Paul is now here in Philippians chapter 3 turning his attention and, you know, really ministering to the church in Philippi. And he wants to speak to them of this subject of joy. And so he tells them in verse one, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe. For you, And so he begins to speak to them of rejoicing in the Lord. I, I love first that in verse one, he says, finally, and we have two full chapters left in front of us. But in Paul's mind, this is a concluding remark where he's going to talk to them of the joy filled life. So let me question you before we get into this particular section of text. Do you long to have a joy filled life? Life. Well, one of the ways to have that great joy is to first of all, as he says in verse one, rejoice in the Lord. The joy, the gladness, the celebration that we find time and time again in this little little epistle written by this Roman prisoner. Uh, this this joy is found in a specific place. He says rejoice in the Lord. Our joy is attached to to our life in Christ. And I've found, at least in my own personal Christian life and experience, that there is a constant battle for joy within the Christian life. I remember years ago reading in Nehemiah chapter 8, where the people had this great revival. They built a platform for Ezra and his uh, co-laborers to read the Word of God, to explain the Word of God to the people throughout the length of an entire day. And this great revival hit the nation of Israel. It was a wonderful, restorative moment for the nation. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, there's this little line that where they say, the people begin to weep. They begin to weep and be broken because of their realization that they had been breaking the law of God. As it was read to them, they saw their own guilt. And the leaders responded and said, hey, be sure... The joy of the Lord is your strength. They're trying to lift their spirits. They say the joy of the Lord is your strength. And and there is this in the midst of our own failures, in the midst of our own shortcomings, in the gap between what we would love to see and what we currently live in. There is this joy that can come through focusing on and refreshing our relationship with jesus christ and so he says rejoice in the lord now he's going to come back to this subject but he gives a little bit of a warning about this rejoicing and specifically in an area where our joy can be stolen where he says in verse two look out for the dogs look out for the evil doers look out for those who mutilate the flesh Now in Paul's time, there were these people that we commonly refer to as Judaizers who went around and followed his ministry. They despised the grace of God and the pure message of the gospel. And so they would come alongside of or behind a man like Paul and they would teach people that faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross is not enough for salvation but that there is a keeping of the law that is necessary. And Paul refers to these legalists, these Judaizers, in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13, as deceitful workers. And here he has a few different titles for them. Number one, he calls them dogs, which is filled with irony because these Jewish legalists would call the Gentiles dogs, But Paul refers to them as dogs. This is Paul unvarnished, just uh, laying it out there, putting a hugely demeaning title upon these men. He also calls them evil doers or evil workers, men who were working for their salvation, trying to do in order to earn salvation. And this was evil in Paul's mind. He also calls them mutilators, mutilators of the flesh, those who mutilate the flesh. And, you know, one of the infatuations for these Judaizers was the subject of circumcision. Paul had gone around telling Gentile men who believed that they did not need to be circumcised in order to, uh, you know, follow the Lord. And these Judaizers would come behind whispering in their ears, saying, no, now it's time for you to adopt The law it's time for you to become circumcised and through this only will your salvation become complete and of course this circumcision back in the Old Testament era was simply an evidence of the internal reality but it had come over time to be uh, an external thing that had no internal presence in it whatsoever And even God had looked forward to the day when there would be a circumcision of heart. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so these Judaizers did not uh, did not understand the wonderful internal work of God by His Spirit, It was all external to them, and so Paul calls them men who love to mutilate the flesh. Then Paul goes on to define his camp. Verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision. We are the real believers, really internally dealt with. And, And that's a wonderful word to use to describe what we who are in Christ love to see the Lord do in our lives. To deal with our sin, to cut out our flesh and to, you know, cut away that which is uh, unnecessary, to cut away that which is, you know, in need of purification. And so he says, we are the circumcision, those who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, first of all, we are the ones who are worshiping by the spirit of God. All of our religious activity, all of our worship is fueled, empowered, motivated by the spirit of God. Uh, And then he says, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These religionists were boasting about what they were accomplishing and what they could do. They were the kind of person that today would say, well, I'm a good person. And I believe that because I'm a good person, God will accept me. Well, Paul is saying, no, in our camp, we don't boast even in the slightest in our flesh. Our boast is completely in what Jesus Christ has done for us. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, he said, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so we are a people who boast completely in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, for all of eternity, we will be singing songs to Jesus. We will be celebrating his great work for us. And we will not be singing songs about our faithfulness, about our works, about our, uh, you know, consecration And we will definitely not be singing or rejoicing that we had somehow earned our spot in heaven. No, we will glory in Christ alone and put no confidence in the flesh as these religious Judaizers had done. Paul goes on in verse 4 and begins to recount his own past, a time when he had put confidence in the flesh. And keep in mind, this is all based and all saturated with the theme of a lack of joy. Paul is saying, listen, if you want joy in your life, boast in Christ. If you want to have your joy zapped, then be a person who boasts in the flesh. And Paul had experienced that life, so he describes that previous joyless existence. He says, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he lists his resume from a fleshly Jewish perspective. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless, And so he runs down uh, his list, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, according to Genesis 17, 12, he had fit that requirement even from birth. He was nationally of Israel. His tribe was of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew, meaning it he was pure. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. We learn in Acts 22 that he was taught by Gamaliel himself. He was involved in verse 6 persecuting the church we know that he was there holding the garments of those who were stoning Stephen, the first martyr in the church and from that point onward until his conversion paul was involved in persecuting the body of christ and he tells us there that he as to righteousness under the law he was blameless. He says in Galatians 1 verse 14 that he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And so he was sincere in his desire to work for his salvation, but he was wrong in trying to work for his salvation at the very same time. Salvation has always been by faith. Uh, Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 6, believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And this is the, you know, common denominator, boiling it all down, uh, issue within mankind. Mankind, in the pride of his heart, thinks that he should be able to, and can, work for his salvation, that by being good enough kind enough, gentle enough, or, or in some cases, just not bad enough. You know, I'm, I I just wasn't too evil that somehow that will, God owes salvation to them based on their works, but that's a joyless existence according to Paul. And he said, that's how he used to be, but he says, verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 that there was a moment of revelation in his life. He tells us in Romans 7 that when he considered the command, Thou shalt not covet, it really began to penetrate his heart. He realized that there was no external thing that he could do to keep his heart from being covetous, that there was this thing inside of him that was drawn to sin. And it was at that moment that he realized a great need for internal redemption as well. And so Paul says, listen, I counted all of this as loss. It would do nothing for me as far as being a redeemed individual, finding salvation or everlasting life, being of the tribe of Benjamin or a Hebrew of Hebrews or a Pharisee, keeping the ceremonial law. None of it would do me a thing. And so he says, I counted all of it as loss. And not just loss, but he says, verse 8, I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and have a relationship with him. He considered all of that, all of those things on his resume as refuse, as garbage, as dung. And so we as a people must refuse to bring Our good works to God as a way to earn a righteous standing in his sight. We must be a people who lean wholly upon the name of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul understood this, of course, as a place of great rejoicing. And so he said in verse 9, His whole goal was to be found in Jesus, and not having a righteousness that he had created that came from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He was tired of his old pharisaical version of righteousness. It was so weak, so fleshy, so human. He wanted the righteousness that came from God that depended on his faith in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 10, Paul, as he speaks of this rejoicing and speaks of counting all of these things as loss and rubbish, he says in verse 10, he says, listen, I, I wanted to gain Christ. So that, verse 10, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice the heartbeat of this man. He wanted to know Jesus. This was his goal within his heart, that I may know him, to personally experientially have a knowledge of jesus christ he wanted a depth with jesus an abiding relationship with jesus a fellowship with jesus he wanted to know jesus in any and every single way this is the man that had said for me to live is christ and to die is gain life itself would be christ for him He would be found in Christ. He would abide in Christ. He just wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to experience more of Christ. And, you know, here he is 30 years down the line from that Acts 9 experience and encounter when he was knocked to the ground with the bright and shining light by Jesus Christ and converted within his heart. 30 years later... Paul is saying, I still want to know him more intimately than I've ever known him, and he wanted more of Jesus. And the thing about knowing Christ and experiencing him it's the most satisfying thing in the world, but it also creates a deep hunger within you for more of Jesus. No relationship on earth can compare to knowing Christ, and he also wanted to know the power of his resurrection. To experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. To be able to say I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And I'd say that Paul lived a powerful life. Even in Philippi as he had cast the demon out of the slave girl. and, And experienced the earthquake in the middle of the night. Which had loosed his bonds and set him free from prison. As he had raised Eutychus from the dead. He had had experienced a powerful, powerful life. But he wanted to experience more of the power of Jesus' resurrection. But notice this as well. He wanted to experience and to share in his sufferings. As I've said before, this is the one time in our life, the long span of our eternal lives, if we're in Christ, that we have a chance to suffer with Jesus to partake of what the New King James Version refers to as the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul said, I want to share in his sufferings. And there's a fellowship with Jesus that you only are exposed to and only enter into as you suffer for his namesake. Not suffering as a result of your own sin, but suffering Uh, in trial, but also and more purely suffering for the cause of Christ and laboring hard and seeing the difficulty and all of that to get close to Jesus by partaking of his sufferings. Now, of course, we will not suffer in a substitutionary death kind of way as Jesus had done. Only Jesus could suffer in that way. Only Jesus could say, it is finished. But Paul was longing for this closer fellowship with Christ. Every labor, every stripe, every death he experienced as he was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and and abandoned in the deep. And on many journeys and perils of waters and robbers and Jews and Gentiles and city and wilderness and sea. False brethren, weariness and toil, sleeplessness, hunger and thirst, fastings, cold and nakedness. His deep concern for the church and all of it that he listed there in Second Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was, was enjoying a deep fellowship with Jesus. And I never want and desire personally the trials that come my way through serving him and embracing and partaking in some small way the fellowship of Jesus' suffering, sharing in his sufferings. I would never vote for them or ask for them specifically, but in my heart of hearts, I know that those times are so sweet because there's a depth with Christ that I can go to, a level I can go to with Jesus that is not possible without a little bit of that difficulty, without a little bit of that death, becoming like him to a greater degree that by any means possible, as Paul said, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul moves on here, and he begins to show the Philippians his philosophy of life. Remember the joy that he'd spoken of back in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord? Well, here is a joy-filled life. Let me ask you if this sounds like a joyful man. He says in verse 12, first of all, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is, by the way, the greatest motivation for just having a perspective that you have not already attained. I mean, Paul had this low view of himself. Matthew 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And after thirty years of walking with Christ, uh, very fruitfully, Paul said, I have not already attained, and I have not already been made perfect. And he explains to them, you know, I I'm pressing on to make these things my own, that fellowship with Christ, that That knowledge of him, that power of his resurrection, that sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, I am pressing on towards that for a simple reason. Christ has made me his own. He understood that he was bought with a price. He was a blood-bought man. And this was his inward and internal motivation. It's not enough to have a motivation to be a blessing to the people around you and to get some measure of self-control in your life or self-betterment or anything like that. Your motivation ultimately has to be because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Who am I under this new ownership where Christ has paid a steep price for me? Who am I to act as if I am my own and under my own management? No, I belong to Jesus. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul gives his philosophy of life, his perspective in so many ways. When he says, listen, this is what I do. First of all, I forget what lies behind. You know, there is a spirit inspired forgetfulness that can be so healthy for God's children to forget about the former days, to forget about the progress even that you potentially made. Even the father prunes the branches that are attached to the vine and the branches that are attached to the vine are things that have grown out of relationship with the vine. But the, the father doesn't give credence to the historical work of Christ in our lives. He's doing a work right now. And Paul himself says, listen, I, I forget about what I've done uh, before. And I move on. He says, I'm, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. He was always looking ahead of him, down the road, thinking about the next part of his race. He said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was a man who was consumed with the eternal reward that he would receive. He told the Corinthian church that he longed for his works when he reported for his life and gave an account for his life before the Lord. He wanted his works to not be wood, hay, and stubble, but to be gold and silver and precious stones, things that would last and endure in the fire. He always spoke of the crown that he was pursuing, running his race to win the race, putting his body into subjection so that he could receive that goal, that prize, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those, verse 15, of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so Paul, in rebuking this legalistic mindset and in longing for us to experience joy, says, have this mindset within you. Think this way. And the mind and what we set our minds upon, the way we think, is all important in bringing us joy. Brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul was unafraid to say, imitate me. To the Corinthians, he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That was no uh, scapegoat for Paul. It was no... no, uh, you know, asterisk kind of statement is in saying, Hey, as long as I'm obeying the Lord, follow me, but there will be some things you don't want to imitate. No, he was confident that his life was uh, moving in the right direction. Imitate me, he would say for many of whom, verse 18, I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he's very clear about these folks. Their end is an everlasting destruction. They are worshipers of their own belly. They glory in shameful things. They boast about things you should not boast about. But Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul explains to these Philippians who would have been so proud of their Philippian citizenship. Philippi was a great city, a uh, honorable city. But Paul says, listen, Philippians, our citizenship, it is in heaven. Set your mind on heavenly things, not like these enemies of the cross who set them on earthly things. And Christ will transform your lowly body someday to be like his glorious body. Set your mind and your heart on that, and you will have great joy. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.